Hello and welcome to the PK Soccer Youth Coaching Podcast with me, Paul Kelshaw. During this time, I will be discussing many topics surrounding the youth game and what people like myself are doing to improve the standards of coaching, player development, spectator understanding and personal growth, especially here in the US. I'll be giving my opinion as well as talking to friends, colleagues, past and present, who have had a positive impact on my own personal coaching development but whom I also believe are having a positive impact in the game today. Today I am joined by Salma Tariq. Salma is a former Hofstra University Division I and Egyptian national team player. Salma is currently the technical director at Pro Game United and the Long Island director of programs for the Special Olympics. Salma has also coached men's and women's college soccer, as well as being a middle school physical education teacher and former NSCAA 30 under 30 participant. I first met Salma in 2014 when we both coached summer camps and clinics for the East Meadows Soccer Club in conjunction with Nassau County Summer Camps Program. But I have followed her career for a distance for some time. Today we talk about the mentality needed to be a Division I athlete and her role as an international leader. We also talk about Salma's various roles as a role model and mentor for youth athletes, especially female soccer players here on Long Island. Hi, Salma. Thank you for joining me this evening. Hi, Paul. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yes, you're welcome. Now, I know that you've been on several Zoom calls recently and you've been on other podcasts and uh, most of the people on Long Island will be very familiar with your playing experience and background so I was very interested in talking about um, your mentality as being a division one athlete um, it's something that I could have only have dreamed of <laughs> of playing college soccer in the US um, but having you know many friends that have played for Hofstra I've played for division one teams I've always been interested in that that desire to win and just that that mentality of a top athlete and I remember I'd listened to one of your calls and you were talking about how you had been challenged with like 1v1 duels in training and how it was a competition and scores were on the board and you were there was some reason you were not happy that you'd been placed towards the bottom of the ladder and but um, it was all a test it was all about you know working hard could you really just um go into details about like what kind of what kind of person did you have to be to be successful as a division one athlete at Hofstra so I I would say the person you have to be is is just resilient um you know I grew up probably not the most ideal situation family-wise um where I lived but the one thing that I always did was I found a solution to any problem I had and it just built resilience in me so my mentality was I literally hated losing I absolutely hated to lose whether it was a 1v1 drill whether it's rock paper scissor um whatever it was in life and I I had three brothers to thank for that I was always super super competitive And I remember the days I played at Hofstra and if we lost, let's say a Friday night game, I would walk out, you know, to my mom 
out of respect and I would literally just wave and I wouldn't say anything. I would just give her a wave. She would leave and then I would leave. And we have tailgates pretty much every home game. And I remember I would go to the tailgate again out of respect, but I would get my food and I would leave and I'd go back to my dorm because that's how pissed off I was at losing. And, you know, I think maybe to some people that was intense. Um, but honestly, I wasn't there to be liked or favored. Um, I was literally there to compete. And for me to go Division One, that was the only option. I didn't have a plan B. I was not playing Division Two. no disrespect. I knew I wanted to play with the best of the best. And in any of those situations that we had in any game, in a clutch situation, I really knew that it was pretty much my job to score. Um, and I would say that I just hated losing. I was such a competitor in, in any part of soccer, on and off the field, it didn't matter. Was there someone that was, um, was the competition for places, especially on the forward line? Yes, 100%. And, you know, I think being a striker for Hofstra, you know, your job, your job is to at least get chances, but really it's to score. And every game, that's what I thought. You know, I, I would kind of say, well, I, I let my team down if I didn't score, if I didn't set somebody up to score and, and assist in any way. And, you know, I took that on every game and, and I love the pressure from it. Um, and I, I just knew that I had to somehow impact the game, whether that's an assist or vocally or scoring. Because I, I'm from a, a Zoom call I had, I had observed that you were on recently. You had talked about... Uh, the 1v1 competition and you just it was you just been used to being like the best on your on your club team and just completely dominating and then you i think i can't remember exactly but you were asked to do something that you that was definitely out of your comfort zone and it was the coach was testing you um and i had i'd been reading an anton dorison book that's probably about 20 years old Probably from like the early nineties, and then I've recently been reading a a book by an author called Dan Blank, who is a a college coach, and the book's about a community college team. But just that the mentality that from both those books was competition at, at practice. You just had to be like this fierce fierce animal. Did that come natural to you? It did. Um... You know, and I think it started from my club days playing at East Meadow and my coach was Chris Smith and everything to him was a competition. Everything to him was stats. So however many goals you could score in a season and assists and, you know, it would be first one to complete this juggle challenge, first one to complete whatever dribbling challenge. And I always wanted to be the first one done. And I practiced so much at home where anytime he had a challenge, I knew I would be the first one. And it would be something ridiculous, you know, juggle the ball a few times, pop it up, spin 360, and, and, and how many times can you do that in a row? Um, but I, I've always just been naturally competitive. When, so when you were playing in the games, there must have been, um, I, I recently spoke to, uh, to two men that I, had, I have worked with that had played college soccer. Um, one had played, they played locally, but they were, they were both center backs. But they were really shocked by the the increase in physicality. Mm. Did you um did you notice a difference in the kind of center backs that you were coming up against? Did did anyone like come out to um to really just like try and spoil your night? 
I would say that was every game. So as a center forward, you're obviously playing really against two center backs. And at least for the women's game and for Division One, they're pretty much 5'10 to 6'1. And I'm a fairly tall woman, but, I mean, these women are, are massive. And, you know, I was playing one of my friends at UNC Wilmington, um, and she kind of said, well, prepare yourself. And I said, what, what do you mean? And she's like, our coach pretty much starred your name, so it's going to be a tough game for you. And I was like, look, I appreciate you letting me know, but that's pretty much every game that I go into. I, I know I'm going to get hit, and I just kind of have to prepare for it because you're two against one. And center backs, you know, it's either you getting by them or the ball, but it's rarely both. So it was a lot of physicality. Do you, How do you prepare the the female athletes that you work with for for that kind of environment or can you can you even prepare them you can um a lot of the time we did our attacking you know six or seven against our, our back four and you know i think simon purposely did that in, in order to prepare because if, if i'm going against maybe our second string center backs um lack of a better word but it's it's not going to be more game like in in my opinion um, and we, we did that a lot and our center, our center backs were just as, as physical as anybody else. And some girls were even more physical and they didn't play center back, but even in practice, it didn't matter who you went up against. Cause at D one, there's so there's every player is physical. Well, and now I wanted, um, obviously a lot of, we've all, we're all fascinated with your with your international experience and playing in the African Cup of Nations, which is obviously a great, a great honor. But, but what I was really interested in was how you really had to, um, with being westernized and, and basically growing up in the US and, and just the kind of, um, the kind of personality you have is, didn't seem that that was um, a typical Egyptian on the team. And you'd, I know that you'd talked about how you really had to, like, with no disrespect to your teammates, but to some degree to carry them, especially, um, especially when just because of the, the fitness that was required, but just like the mental toughness as well. Can you talk about some of your experiences as, as being that international leader and having to step up to, to you know, to um, represent your country? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I always say it's the best experience I've ever been with, and I, I will say that to anybody. So going as the American is, is what they called me. Naturally, I had a different mindset and I had a different mentality. And that again, that was just competition. It was just I want to be the best player that I can be. So there's a time where, you know, I, I went to Egypt and I asked if they had a gym, you know, so I could work out, I could lift. And a lot of the girls were like, what, what are you doing? Why are you lifting? That, that's not good for you. Um, and I, I said, well, you know, tell that to the, US, the USA national team because they're, they're the best team in the world. And a lot of them lift. So I actually started doing, a, you know, light, light weights. And a lot of the girls would join. So they would kind of mimic what I'm doing. I would kind of help them with form. And, you know, a lot of it I learned at Hofstra, um, you know, with our spring season. And it was, it was kind of our little club. And another side of that was after every practice, I, I would do an ab workout. So it could be like five minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it might be. And, and they, they were like, well, why, why are you doing that? Well, what is that for? 
and obviously it's for your core. So slowly every practice that we went to, I, have, I would have like two girls and then it would be up to, you know, four girls and then it'd be up to seven. And I think they just realized my mentality and, and what I was willing to do after we trained. Um, and it wasn't anything special. It wasn't anything really extra, but they looked at it. Well, if Selma's doing it and she lives in America and this is what they do at school, well, like, why are we not doing it? And I thought that was something so simple, but they would look forward to it. Like, oh, we're, we're going to exercise today, right? And I'm like, yeah, of course. We just train. Let's do it. So it was and really leading by example. Hundred percent. You know, I, I didn't I don't speak fluent Arabic. And even in fitness, you know, some of them would say slow down. And, and I, I never heard that in America, you know, to slow down. I'm not the fastest. I've never been. I've never been even the most fit. And um, to hear that. I just went faster. I'm like, you think I'm going fast now? I was like, I'm just going to keep pushing. Um, you know, and to them, they kind of, I think, just wanted to get by with doing the minimum where, you know, I think in America, you, we just do the maximum we can. What was some of the um, the things that you had to do on the field if, if a teammate may have been lagging or or if maybe the games were getting so intense that, that people were getting emotional and, and just needed that? that lift so a lot of the time practice wise it was it was difficult because they were there was a lot of bickering um you know arguing it's my ball it's this that's a foul it's not and to be honest when I was younger I was very very frustrated um to the point where one practice I actually walked off the field and I I just I was like I had enough I can't do this because it seemed that they were arguing more than playing and I believe in the game it's a little harder because, unfortunately, you have to wait till halftime, especially if, if I wanted to really say anything because I would need a translator. And I would tell the few girls that could speak Arabic and English, I would kind of give them some guidance as to what to tell them because a lot of the women that played didn't play in, 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 in these big moment games. And a lot of them, their emotions just took over. And they were nervous. They are scared. They made a mistake. Their head was down. Um you know, and it's it's part of the game to make a mistake. We all make them, you know, but it's it's just how you bounce back after that. And, you know, I think being there and helping them even at halftime, um, you know, what was good for them because then they would smile and you'd be like, all right, she's good to go. And now this leads me to, um, well, how we, we met. I know that we'd um, had obviously known you as a distance from, from your hostel playing days when I was a Noga trainer, but we basically met from from doing summer camps for for east meadow um which was really just um we worked with a lot of kids that were really just summer drop-off it wasn't necessarily east meadow coaching it was more for nassau county but we got to um to meet like a lot of different different players and young kid, kids but you've worked with so many different players here on the island um from, for different organizations. If you could talk a little bit about how you help the East Meadow players, uh, especially with that being the club that you played for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I always refer to how I was coached as a kid with Chris Smith, and, and he was really, you know, a role model for me. He was more like my dad. Um, and I, I still talk to him to this day, and I started playing at eight years old. And... You know, that player-coach relationship for me was was everything. 
Um, you know, I, I didn't have a male role model at the time. It was, it was my mom was my mom and my dad. Um, and he came along and, and took an interest, not because I was one of the best players, but I think he understood my situation. And I think that's, that's what I really try to do. Um, you know, I, I really try to figure out their situation and where, where those girls are coming from. Um, you know, whether they are, maybe their parents are going through a divorce or maybe, you know, they have siblings that are, you know, better than them in the sport or whatever it might be. Um, you know, I, I just want to be that example for them. I want to be that outlet for them. And, you know, I, I think people refer to me as, you know, a mentor or a role model or, you know, you're an inspiration and, you know, that, that's all great. Um, you know, I, I'm nothing special. I, I just, I really just live from my heart and, you know, I, I have my mom to thank for that and, and teaching me how to care for other people. And obviously I thank God for that. Um, you know, because growing up in a fatherless home, it's the statistics are pretty scary. So when Chris Smith kind of took that interest in me, um, you know, I said, well, it's, it's kind of my duty to pay it forward because at the end of the day, um, I took my C license and something that hit home to me was, uh, one of the instructors said, you never know what a kid is going through. And I took that wholeheartedly because I said, you know what? That makes a lot of sense because they come to practice and, you know, maybe they failed their exam or maybe they have boyfriend issues or maybe their best friend, you know, said something nasty on social media. I mean, these kids go through so much prior to even getting to practice that, you know, I, I had a system where everybody has to give me a pound before and after practice. So it's just little fist bump. That's it. Um, and I'll do some quick little warm up game. So they're all smiling because. I could tell when a kid's coming and that they just had a bad day and that it breaks my heart because, you know, soccer could be that outlet and it, it doesn't always have to be so serious. And I think sometimes we forget that as coaches because we want the best from them, but sometimes that's just, you know, have a quick goofy warm up for 10 to 15 minutes. It's, it's really going to make such a difference than, you know, maybe just drilling them in with, with some kind of exercise. Yeah. Well, that was, um, it's good that you mentioned that because that was one of the reasons that I'd wanted to speak to you. I wanted to start and talk about, um, you know, that that drive to win and that mentality that you had as a Division One athlete and as an international player. But then understanding that we are working with people and they need that personal touch. And from following your social media, um, just the connection that you have with the athletes that you work with is is really a, a big inspiration and the girls are, I can tell they're a, they're a lot and the boys are a lot a lot better for it and I know that since these men you've had several different different positions yeah um I know that I'd seen that you'd been working at a school in the Bronx and I, okay I know that may not have been a soccer position but um a lot of the things that you talked about with, without knowing these people, um, I don't want to stereotype, but if you're talking about um, people that may not have such a secure home life um, or where there's lots of distractions on the streets mm -hmm. and, and then in the neighborhood, could you just talk a little bit about that? Because even though it's not soccer, it's something that um, you know intrigued me of how you connected with with those kind of people or the students, should I say? Yeah. So I would say that was one of the biggest challenges for me 
Um, that was my first year of teaching ever after I graduated. And I would say the first month was extremely difficult because they don't really like change. And being at a charter school in the Bronx, there's, there's constant change. It could be, you know, class scheduling. It could be a lot of it is teachers. It's the leadership. It's maybe they don't have a coach for a certain sport. And once they get used to something uncomfortable, you know, it's like, oh, no, we're going to change it. And naturally, as, as any human being would, they get frustrated. So I was the new phys ed teacher and, you know, I didn't really know how to pronounce their names. So the first couple of days I butchered almost every name. And um, then I got smart and I said, okay, I kind of see who, you know, the cool kids are and, and the ones that are going to act out. And I, I gave them all a task. So the ones that kind of will rally up the group, you know, would take attendance for me that day because it would be done in a minute rather than me going through it for like eight minutes. Um, and I would give them tasks of, okay, you're going to be the equipment manager for the week. Everything has to be brought out, put back. You have to get it all together. And I would just give them roles. And to them, they loved it. They loved that accountability of, okay, Miss T is going to rely on me. I have to do my job. And to be honest, they were, they were great leaders in their class. Um, why it was rough, it was because, you know, I, I was teaching full-time and I was also coaching full-time. So on top of teaching, I had three teams at East Meadow, and then I was also coaching with ODP. But every day I woke up, and, and thankfully I woke up because that's, that's a privilege. Um, you know, I, I thought about those kids, and, and that's what really got me in my car to commute, you know, an hour and a half, maybe two hours some days where it would rain or snow and, and, and back. So it's three to four hours every single day in a car, in traffic. Um, and I never understood why we were never closed. You know, Long Island would say, okay, there's snowstorm, we're closed. And then a teacher brought it up to me and she said, well, we're never closed because sometimes if, if we are closed, those kids don't eat. Um, and, and that hit home like big time because, you know, there's times where my mom didn't eat and, and we ate, but she didn't eat. And I just never complained anymore. I was like, you know what? <laughs> If, they, if they're taking a bus to school and a subway and they have to get up just as early as me because their parents don't have a car or maybe they don't, they're not driving, you know, what's my excuse? I have a car. I get up. I have a great place to live. And, um, you know, I, I would say that I just started to care about them as, as a person. And I didn't look at them just as my, my students and that they're all crazy and, you know, they should behave better. And... I think after you met some of the parents, you realize, well, actually, the kid is, is very mature, you know, for their age because they're in middle school. You know, that's when they experiment. That's when they want to test you. That's when they're really figuring out who they are. Um, and once I started to care about them, you know, that that whole month, the first month, everything changed. You know, if, if a kid had an issue in a class, they're like, can I just go talk to Miss T? And, you know, I had off periods, but I, I was never off because if. Right. If a kid had an issue, I would be there. I would maybe go in the English class because they were rowdy and, and kind of settle them down and, and have some classroom management. Um, you know, some kids I knew that, you know, loved soccer because a lot of them did. Um, and they knew my background and they kind of Googled me. Um, you know, I said, if, if you get certain grades for the semester, you know, I'll buy you a pair of cleats. Whatever you want, you could pick them. I didn't care if they were $200 or $100. Money money comes and goes. That doesn't matter to me. Um, but I wanted them to, to really work for something and then really get rewarded for it. And 
there's certain kids that I know maybe they love this thing called chopped cheese in the Bronx. And it's it's basically just ground beef, like a burger, and, and there's a bunch of stuff in it. I never knew what it was till I moved. And um, I said, if you if you behave for the week and you, you do not get written up, every Friday I'll buy you a chopped cheese for lunch. And certain kids did it all the time and certain kids didn't. And I said, look, I'm not going to buy it because you got, you know, only one person wrote you up. I said, nobody has to write you up and, and you'll get the chopped cheese. And... You know, I, I think when you care about anybody, um, you know, they're, they're, they're so invested in you. And it's, you can't fake it. Kids know, you know, if you're faking or acting to care, kids know that. And they read right through it, especially, you know, I, I think in the Bronx because they, they grow up very fast. So for me, that's, that's what motivated me every day. And I actually, I, I coach soccer there on top of my other teams. Um, we did a soccer elective and, you know, they wanted to pay me. And I was like, look, I don't want the money. Give it to some other resource. I'll do this for free. It's no big deal. And um, those kids were, were were so appreciative that, you know, I had the background. And a lot of the stuff we did, they're like, we, we've never done this. And this is amazing. Um, and one of the teachers that was a sub actually came in and was like, are you Selma? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, I don't know what you did with these kids, but all they do is talk about soccer and how much they love you. And I was like, I just cared at the end of the day. That's it. Do you think this um, this changed your outlook on how you work with athletes? Yeah, I think 100%. I, I would say when I went to the Congo at 17 and, and saw what I saw there, um, that that just changed me personally. You know, I, I saw things that you see in movies, but obviously hands-on. And um, I swore I would never complain about anything ever again after seeing that. Because one thing um, from the social media pictures or videos I'd seen of your, of your teaching, after the fact that you, maybe the student had already graduated, but you went to his soccer game. And it may, and it was basically on a on a dirt. It was a recreational game on a dirt field, but you you promised that boy that you would go to his game and you went to watch. And I also see um, now with your with your other coaching roles on Long Island that you will um, you'll be present at whether it's um, or recently it might be a car parade, but it it may have been a, a, a sweet sixteen. I've seen you where you like you go to a, one of the girls' sweet 16s, or if it's um, just a wave to them as they go to prom. Um, a lot of birthday parties, just a lot of extra things, just like you said, to show to show your care, which is um, is not not common. I I don't think it. Um, there's so many there's so many coaches that were just you you clock in, you clock out session. If your session finishes at seven, it's six fifty-five, and we're wrapping up. But you're taking it that one step further. What inspires you then to to? And I know you've touched on it a little bit, but what inspires you to to connect with these athletes on a on a sociable level as well, just to really get to know them better? Honestly, it's for me. It was my coach growing up. And I think as, as any player in any sport, 
sometimes you just want to talk to somebody else that's maybe not biased, you know? So a lot of things growing up, you, you, you really don't want to tell mom and dad. Um, and, and I just know, like, coaching very early on, I, I knew I could connect with girls because, one, I kind of grew up, obviously, as a girl. And it's a lot of things we go through in middle school transition and high school transition. And, um, you know, I, I just care about them and I want them to be the best person they can. And I don't know where it came from um, because I was I had a big attitude growing up. And, you know, I, I wish somebody kind of was like me and, and took that kind of interest to, to be at, you know, everything. And um, I would say, you know, not being in the, in the soccer aspect of it, other things that they do, like the Sweet 16s and everything, that's a moment they'll never forget. And if, if I'm privileged enough to be invited, which I, I, I really do take it as a privilege, um, you know, I, I've missed going on, on trips with my friends and going away because I said there's absolutely no, I have to go around this weekend. I can't miss it. And I, I've never missed one. And, you know, I think parents think I kind of go for them. Um, but the whole time I'm with the girls at the table, I'm dancing with the girls. And it's funny because sometimes they'll be like, well, you look funny. And I said, I don't really care what people think and nor should you, because a lot of the time you guys just care what, what you look like. And you're just sitting there looking all sad. I'm like, just get on and dance. I'm like, who cares if people are looking at you like you're having a good time? And that's what I, I liked about from the videos as well that you post with your sessions. Like, I, do, I know that the girls that work for you, or they, they have to work so hard, so hard. But then I see one girl's wearing um, a tutu, or one girl's got face paint, or your... Um, I don't know if you're making TikToks at drinks breaks and things, but just really um, the um, really just making these these girls feel like know that like they are playing a game. There's a certain way I want you to play this this game, mm -hmm. but then there's also a certain way I want you to enjoy this game, and that's something that that like I I really like to see, and it's and it's the the amount of coaches that I've had work. Um, that I've worked with in the past, and then you hear that story, oh, great coach, but no personality. Great coach, yes. no personality. And just being able to um, to give that, well, it's more than a personal touch, because it's, yeah. like I said, this is why I wanted to talk to you, because it not, it's not normal. It's not normal. Like, <laughs> this is that, you, you're going so far, so far beyond. And I also like, I know you'd mentioned there that, um, the parents appreciate it as well. So um, this is what one thing as well that can get overlooked. Um, and especially here on Long Island, like that connection with the parents as well it, is so important. And if those parents, like you said, if you, you said before, if you think, um, you know, if a, a child can tell if you're faking it, well, a pet parents will see through you straight away. Yes. So if you can, um, you know, that's something that's, um, really you know a credit to you and i hope that fully the girls and the other and the athletes that you work with like realize that they're so they're so lucky mm -hmm. so that leads me then to to talk about st10 and obviously with the podcast they won't be able to see your your shirt but i see that you're probably oh, yeah. representing your your st10 shirt you tell tell the listeners a little bit about um about ST10 and, and, and what it's all about and, and what you do for the Long Island community? 
Yeah. So I, you know, when I started it, um, a lot of people actually laughed at me and, you know, they were like, well, why are you, why are you going to put the USA flag and the Egypt flag together? And no one's, no one's going to wear that. Like, that's crazy. Um, you know, and I, I like when people laugh at me and, and think I'm crazy because I know I'm going to do something that's going to impact. And at the end of the day, when I believe in it, I, I don't need anybody else to. Um, so it really just fuels my fire, number one. But the goal is, you know, to inspire women all over the world. And it, I, I don't just mean in the States. Um, you know, I, I definitely the bigger goal is, is to get to Africa and, and help women there. Um, you know, and it, and it be like a 360 mentorship. So it's really to focus on them being the best person they can. But, you know, being that mentor in, in, in every aspect of life. So it's not just, you know, soccer related. Maybe it's it's school. Maybe it's academically, um, you know, and, and how can we tap into resources to help these kids? Maybe it's, you know, an attitude. Maybe it's suggesting a book, um, you know, and, and as weird as that sounds, but like you said, Anton Dorrance, um, you know, his staff always reads a book before preseason. So they're all on the same page and, you know, they have the same values. And that's that's really what it's about. Um, you know, I think any person I've, I've coached or still do coach, um, I've built that relationship with them and, and even more so the parents and once the parents are on board, I mean, in Long Island, you could do wonders, you know, you, you could do so many different things. And, you know, I think that's really why I started it, because I, I, I didn't see many coaches that, you know, go the extra mile. Um, and me as, as being a leader, I, I think you in anything have to do the extra mile. You have to go the extra mile. I don't care if it's, you know, your career or maybe, you know, you're, you're going out with somebody and you want to do something nice for them. It doesn't matter what it is, but I always believe in going the extra mile. So, you know, if I'll tell you a funny story with a with a sweet 16s, um, they're at that age of, of dressing a certain way and acting a certain way. And, you know, I, I had a conversation with my older team and I said, look, we're going to have a great time. It's going to be a, an amazing night. But we, I'm going to talk to you about attire and how you should dress. And they all looked at me like. You're not my mom. I said, I, I don't care. You know, I said, you're representing our club. You're representing our team. And I said, you guys could all look classy and, you know, not trashy. So we made it a rule where, you know, if you don't think it's appropriate, you know, meaning certain length and, and this and that, um, obviously don't wear it. And if you're unsure, send me a picture, because if I show up and one of you are dressed in not an age appropriate outfit, I will drop my gift off and say hi and I'll leave. And, you know, the girls were like, you won't do that. I said, no problem. I said, go ahead, be the one that wears whatever she wants. And I'll show you by example what I mean. And it's funny because I had certain girls that would text me, is this, is this dress okay? And I would say, mm, I think you could do better. And I would never put them down like, what are you thinking? Absolutely not. But for them to even reach out and be comfortable to do that, um, and respect that I was, I was real with my words. Um, you know, I, I have girls now that text me pictures about graduation. She's, you know, they're like, what dress should I wear? What do you think's appropriate? And I think that's phenomenal because what teenage girl would ever do that? Um, I, I don't know many, but building that culture of, you know, dress appropriately. And, and one time I, I had probably four dresses and I let the team pick. I said, what dress do you want me to wear? Because I said, if they're doing it, I should do it. Um, 
and they all voted and I wore what they asked. And, you know, it's, it's just that connection of, it could be something silly as a tire, you know, and, and they have such a vested interest because again, they're in that age of like, I want to have style. Well, it's, that leads, that's really great that you say that. Cause I've also seen, um, seen the pictures you post where you are, you are dressed out. You're really, you know, you're dressed up and you're, you got the big heels on, but you still can juggle a soccer ball. Um, yes. But then um, this leads to my other question. A lot of the, um, in fact, all the guests that I've spoke to on my podcast, they all have like um, something special about them and a really, really something that's inspired me as well. And they're all learners. And I know that you've, um, through obviously your, uh, your studies at Hofstra, I know you've done at Mercy College, the human resource, but, what I really found interesting was recently that you just decided to become a makeup artist uh, just, um, and you'd posted these pictures and it really leads into what you were just talked about, how like, um, like the importance of like, of like feeling beautiful, like on the inside and the outside. Could you like explain your desire of why you wanted to become a make- makeup artist and what you feel like um, that does for the female athletes that you work with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I made I made a decision last summer that, you know, from, from the fall until next fall that this was going to be the year to completely get out of my comfort zone. And, you know, I wanted to start being comfortable with the uncomfortable. And I, I thought, what other way to start than becoming a makeup artist? I knew absolutely nothing about becoming a makeup artist. Um, I didn't even know what concealer was. And, you know, some of the girls laughed at me. And I was like, I literally have no idea. Um, and I wanted to really, you know, show the girls that I could do something that I know nothing about. And I'll excel in it. Because I'm just going to be consistent and persistent. And, you know, I think them seeing me from day one and I kind of have it on my Instagram of, you know, my, my beauty Instagram um, from day one until I graduated the progression, because I, I was God awful in the beginning. I was so bad. Um, and as every day went and I practiced more and more, I started developing a habit. Um, and I think for them, it's, it's anything in life. And I wanted them to know, Anything you want to start at any any point in life, if you're 30, if you're 15, as long as you do it long enough, you'll be able to achieve it. Um, and for them, you know, they were a lot more girly than me at, at 16. And, you know, I, I think I became girly after I graduated Hofstra. And um, that that was really why I did it. I just wanted to do something I had. I, I knew nothing about and no knowledge. And I wanted to excel so that they could see my example and not just my words. Yeah, and I also saw you've got so many. Um, obviously, you've got access to all these um, different models or teammates of um, play. Um, or I should say, so many girls that are there, like really willing to be um, t- to be models to help, so you can practice and things. Yeah. Uh, so you, you just have that that extra connection as as well, um, and also at obviously at the earlier this year as well i found out that you just got um a new position you just got a new job could you 
Could you tell uh, the listeners a little about about that and what your role is with the Special Olympics? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I became the director of program for Long Island for the Special Olympics. Um, it was definitely one of the hardest interviews I've ever been on. And obviously we're on a pause right now, so there's there's not really much going on except, you know, virtual meetings with staff and coaches and, and some of the athletes. And, you know, for me, I, I've had a lot of different career paths. And, you know, I, I think the biggest thing is I wanted to be part of a cause that was bigger than myself. And, you know, what better organization than the Special Olympics? And, you know, although I haven't really tapped into my role because, because of COVID, yes. um, I know, I know this is going to be something I absolutely love, um, you know, not just because I, I love working with athletes and, and making things come to life, but, you know, I, I think the family that Special Olympics has and, and my supervisor, Tim Flynn, he's absolutely amazing, so passionate about it and the organization and the movement, um, you know, and I love working with people who have energy and that can actually work collectively and, and kind of put your ego aside and, and take that criticism and they they do it with a common cause in mind and with so much passion. Um, and I, I think that's so rare these days. And I think a lot of jobs are so mundane because it's the same routine. And, you know, you don't work together and you don't have a common goal. It, it's really just, you know, me against you. And, and I'm, I want to win and I don't care how I treat you. Um, you know, a lot of jobs are like that, unfortunately. And. I, I've just been very lucky and blessed to to be given, you know, this opportunity. So will you still continue to coach soccer? Absolutely. I will coach until I, you know, can't walk anymore. And, I, and then I might still find a way to do it. Well, I've been um, I've been so impressed with the amount of time that well, one that you gave me tonight um, for the podcast. But just but just in general, the. You know, your social media platforms are a must follow. Um, you're, the athletes that you work with are, are so lucky and they're so fortunate. And I wish you all the best for, for when we can finally get back out on that field. And thank you. No, th thank you. The, the pleasure is all mine. And, and I appreciate you even taking the time to even do this podcast and, and have me as a guest. It's, it means a lot to me more than you know. All right, thank you, Salma. I really want to thank Selma for taking the time to talk to me today. I'm fascinated by the mentality and resilience needed to be a Division I college and international athlete. I love that she was a fearless competitor with a desire to always find a solution to win and improve. I am also impressed with her leadership skills and desire to push her team teammates on the international stage to the next level making sure everyone feels important and they have a vital role is so important and a special skill when leading as a team. Salma has taken her experience on the field as a player and made a huge impact on so many youth soccer players' lives. I like Salma's message that you have to care as a person. You can't fake it as athletes and parents will see straight through you. It's critical that we show grit personality and emotion in our coaching sessions. The mission and vision of the ST10 brand is quite noble. Salma's athletes have to work hard. There are no excuses, but soccer is a game for all and an opportunity to teach life lessons. If you are given the opportunity to play, 
and wake up every morning, it must be celebrated. I really admire the mentorship Salma provides to her players and her ability to promote inner and outer beauty on and off the field, especially with her female athletes. This is a remarkable quality that makes Salma the special person that she is today. Thank you for listening to the PK Soccer Podcast. Don't forget that you can follow me on Twitter at Paul Kelshaw, Instagram at Paul Kelshaw, like my Facebook page at PK Soccer Inc. or send an email paulkelshaw at pksoccer.org. I would also be grateful if you could give the podcast a review and a rating and share with your fellow coaches and friends. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.